right. So this morning I got up and have you heard the new Lana Del Rey? Mm-mm. It's uh, it's phenomenal song title. Chemtrails over the country club. <laughs> you know, and, and I'm listening to it. Like I watched the video when it came out and it's like, whatever. I'm interested in her sort of Americana element to her. She seems very interested in the idea of America. You know, I really appreciated mm-hmm. that when she won a Grammy for her album, Norman fucking Rockwell, she showed up in an off the rack dress from Dillard's. I was like, that's cool. Like I respect that. <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, but I was listening to it and there's this moment where she says, um, she references the Brentwood market, which is this like very Americana thing in the wealthy area of LA Brentwood. It's on the West side. When I came out to LA to see like when my wife and I were falling in love, you know, I was living in New Mexico. She was living in LA. We both live in LA now. One of the places she dropped me off because she had to go work on the West side was the Brentwood mall. And so I had this experience just sort of like hanging out there for a few hours and like eating at the food court and like going to the bookstore and like, you know, just killing time. And I've started to realize what California is like what LA is, what this dream was started to aesthetically make sense. Like all the Joan Didion I had read or whatever was like beginning to cohere in a more visceral way. And so um, this morning I'm in LA. I'm more, I'm on the east side now. You know I don't I don't really leave my fucking apartment because it's the uh, pandemic or whatever. And I'm listening to the song and she mentions like spending time at the Brentwood Mall and she's doing this whole critique of this you know vapid narcissistic um, and kind of paranoid world of glitzy Los Angeles life. And it's in moments like that when you realize you live in a place that's bigger than just being in it. I've mostly lived in flyover country at this point. So when I'm in Tallahassee, Tallahassee is about the size of Tallahassee. Mm. When you live in LA, things like the Brentwood market are now in a song that has 11 million plays and global reach. And you start to realize just how big America is culturally what a player it is in the world. But when you live here and you have these experiences, like when I can think about being madly in love with my wife, when we were first starting out, I think of the Brentwood market and like killing time there. So excited for her to finish up whatever she was working on so that we could spend time together. And it starts to make you feel like you're living in this simulation Mm. because everything is bigger than it is in this unseen way that you can't put your finger on when you're there. It is this hazy dream that I feel like Lana Del Rey really captures in that song. I'd say that's a large part of her aesthetic, the sort of hazy quality, like this melancholic aspect. But living now in California being subjected to California dreaming as a way of life, it really stuck with me. And and what I appreciated about that song was that it approached this sort of like paranoid American nihilism. I can't put it better than chemtrails over the country club. You mm. know, like, I think that's, that's perfectly captures it. That's really interesting. 
Did you ever watch True Detective season two? I think I made it partway through when it was like coming out and then like a bunch of shit happened and I lost track. I almost People... never finish watching entire shows. Oh yeah. <laughs> People really didn't like it, I guess. Well, they thought that they were going to get more of season one and it was like an entirely different thing, which mm-hmm. I was happy with that. It seemed like they were trying to aesthetically get at kind of the same thing. I just like there's, you know, a scene where Vince Vaughn's like laying in bed, staring at the ceiling and he feels I may be misremembering, but he feels like the ceiling is some sort of like really thin paper mache over some other thing, mm-hmm. which actually sort of is relevant to what we're going to talk about today. But there is a kind of like there is a deep set, like the way they set up some of the shots and like some of the things are is like there's a kind of haze of unreality on top of like a swirling nest of corruption and like mm-hmm. seediness. And that's sort of how they're trying to portray like a super corrupt, like small California town mm-hmm. that's sort of interestingly integrated into the larger government and world. But um, yeah, no, it's really interesting. Cause it's like, it's got qualities of like John Keats or something where it's like unreal, hazy, a little bit dreamlike. Uh, but then a completely obviously like a modern industrial mm-hmm. version of like a John Keats fairy poem or something. <laughs> yeah, so. totally. But yeah, I mean, I think you're right that this does speak to the type of the nihilism new and old we're sort of going to, to talk about today, which I guess starts with Leo Strauss's essay, German nihilism. Yeah. So I um, got an email from, Justin Murphy's The Other Life Stuff. Uh, and he was talking about an upcoming class with a Strauss scholar, Michael Millerman, that they're holding over there. Um, and unfortunately, I can't help plug it because it's already pretty much sign up is done at this point by the time you're hearing this. But they may do it again later. And, uh, you know, if I had a few hundred dollars to throw around for something like that, I might have wanted to take it. But so there is an interview Justin did with Michael on his podcast and he's kind of trying to get like basic points as to like who's Strauss, why does he matter to us today, what's interesting about him. And so the first text that Michael Miller points out uh, as like kind of the first thing you could read of Strauss's would be an essay, which is I think a speech he gave at the new college called German nihilism. And what we have from that are like his speech notes. And so we'll just getting into that. Basically what Strauss wants to say is there's a kind of question in the air. It's what is it? 1941 of February of 1941. People are like wanting to know, I guess, what is German nihilism? Because I suppose this is seen as the bedrock of national socialism. Um, I mean, Mussolini was sort of famous for invoking a complete lack of any objective value at times. Like, you know, force creates, like that is all there is, you know, you do what you can. So Strauss is trying to talk about like, well, what is this? What makes it up? And is it because there's a picture of nihilism where it's purely destructive Uh, There's no meaning and it wants to destroy everything and itself. And he's quick to say it's not that. And in fact, German nihilism 
has its origins in a moral protest or a moral outrage against two things that were kind of going concerns in interwar Weimar Germany, like nascent liberalism of the, the Weimar liberal, you know, set up and the specter of a communist revolution, which was very real in Germany at the time. And what you have is essentially a group of young educated men who are all in college, I'm assuming in the universities there somehow or another who feel kind of an inherent disgust at both of these things. Like they hate the going order of Weimar and it's characterized by things like the cabaret, a sort of like, it's the open society. Their people are coming together for pleasure and for money. Uh, and that's what these people see in it. And communism for them, it's not much better because it presents the dream of a world. Essentially, once it's come to fruition, there's no state, there's no classes, and there's no real struggle or conflict any longer. And for them, it's a vision of a human life not worth living. So they sense in these two things, basically, like, these are horrible, and there's got to be something else, some other way. Um, and so Strauss points out that basically you have a bunch of guys like this and they're in the universities and they're really angry and they have a moral protest. And this is the point at which they would need guidance because they have, he says they have a no, they have a strong no. In fact, it's extremely strong, but their yeses are kind of various and at times ridiculous. And I think it's easy to imagine that if you look at, people who have a legitimate grievance, you can gather them all together, but what they think will solve it could be as different as there are people in the room. And the, so, and it matters less than the grievance does. It, it matters much less. And I mean, go on Twitter and it's like, we have to reinstate like Catholic integralism, like, you know, whatever the, yeah, like you yeah. have a million different, like sort of makeshift interchangeable ideologies about what will solve the problem. And you could say that none of them feel that serious when you're looking at them, but if you only looked at the positive programs, you'd be missing the underlying driving force behind the fact that people feel they need to do this in the first place. Um, like, why can't you just be a normal person? You can't answer that question by looking at the sort of like headdress they're trying to wear. It goes deeper. And for Strauss, the ultimate failure in Germany with dealing with these people is that there were no educators well, there were. There were no educators in a specific, almost more uh, morally classical sense that could yeah. empathize with these people. He says here, um, the adolescents I'm speaking of were in need of teachers who could explain to them in articulate language the positive and not merely destructive meaning of their aspirations. They believe to have found such teachers in that group of professors and writers who knowingly or, unknowing, or ignorantly paved the way for Hitler. And here he names people like Spangler, Schmidt, Junger, and Heidegger. And we must cast a quick glance at their opponents, who were at the same time the opponents of the young nihilists. Those opponents committed frequently a grave mistake. They believed to have refuted the no by refuting the yes, i.e. the inconsistent, if not silly, positive assertions of the young men. But one cannot refute what one has not thoroughly understood. And many opponents did not even try to understand the ardent passion underlying the negation of the present world and its potentialities. 
As a consequence, the very refutations confirm the nihilists in their belief. All these refutations seem to beg the question. Most of the refutations seem to consist of pueris de cantata, of repetitions of things which the young people knew already by heart. Those young men had come to doubt seriously, and not merely methodically or methodologically, the principles of modern civilization. The great authorities of that civilization did no longer impress them. It was evident that only such opponents would have been listened to, who knew that doubt from their own experience, who through years of hard and independent thinking had overcome it. Many opponents did not meet that condition. And he, Michael Miller even brings up that he's experienced this when he was teaching uh, in the like academy now. Um, as a TA, he would have people come to him who would say, you know, like I tried talking to professor so-and-so and it just confirmed for me that they're utterly like clueless about a lot of the stuff that I'm trying to figure out as a, you know, probably like somewhat tortured and confused younger person in college, which is something that I can definitely remember. I was extremely lucky to have met people older than me who kind of formed what Strauss is talking about here. I was able to bring them concerns that were very deep and meaningful to me and get like an actual response to my concern where they would be like, yeah, that is, you know, like maybe you're right. And they're, yeah, they could meet you halfway. Yeah. And I think what Strauss is pointing to here is their, their revolt against like liberal open societies because they see that morality is basically impossible in that kind of a setting. Like that's the going opinion of the German nihilists who eventually supported the Nazi regime is that, in the open society, like we were saying, it's a marketplace for people to meet for pleasure and for money. Like they, moral life, I think for them is the social component is necessary and it's lacking there. And I feel like I had a lot of the same concerns when I was younger. I don't know like why, how exactly I came to that, but I ended up being quite bothered by the fact that it felt like a lot of potentialities for being able to live a like meaningful and moral life felt somewhat foreclosed on already when I was, you know, just like in my late teens. And so I would ask people about this and the people who are actually able to have a meaningful effect on me would say, yeah, that's true. But, and then sort of problematize what I was saying would fix it. And then ask me to like, go back and do a better job, you know, like, okay, this is a real problem, but like now you have to work on it and you can't come up with something half-assed. And it also required a kind of, which is another aspect of what Strauss is talking about, is like your teacher is not just there to give you information. Like this is sort of platonic stuff. So we're talking about like a spiritual training too. Like you can't. An honest dialectic, right? Where you're entered into an intellectually intimate process of trying to understand what's really at stake and why and to clarify things and to problematize easy answers and, and stuff like that. you can't do that. It can't work by rote. It can't work by dogma. That yeah. there is this higher plane of duty that exists here. Now, <clears throat> Strauss... And you also can't do it... Well, I feel like it's an important point. You can't do it if you're in an adolescent stage and ruled by the ego. Mm. Like if you're ruled by passions and you're kind of like, if your rationality 
we're just going to go there is in service to your passions, then it's a self-destructive cycle. At least that's what I'm going to posit here. And I feel like that's what Strauss I would definitely agree with is like, you can't solve big world problems if you're a wreck inside. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's sort of an integral part of the classical idea of education to begin with is you're not being educated solely to know and to argue, but the possibility of rationality first requires a measure of self-control and self-discipline, mm-hmm. which it's like a necessary propedeutic to thinking. And I mean, if you, I'm sure if you looked at these people then or today, you'll notice that it's severely lacking. Like mm-hmm. reason is in service to, you know, self-doubt, anger, um, self-pity. Like there's a lot going on there that really precludes like an honest undertaking of like a rational enterprise to say, okay, like society has problems. What can I do? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Which is only exacerbated by the fact that the avenues towards participating in society for this type of person feel foreclosed upon, as you're saying, you know, or the society can't honestly allow for certain types of, um, activity, you know, like you're cast out to the margins. I mean, I had like a three hour conversation with my friend Adrian the other day about how, like, I was just like, how the fuck do we be American? Like, what does it mean to do something for my country right now? And we basically just stared at each other on a zoom call for three hours being like, I don't know, I guess we're trying to figure that out right now. You know? Yeah. Really no easy answer presents itself. Yeah, if you just sit back and ask yourself that question honestly, and and that's sort of what we're talking about here. Similar to like Emerson's concerns, I think in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Basically, we establish that like there are young people who feel a moral outrage at modern society, like contemporary society as it has become since then a global thing. Now, he'll talk about why this is particularly German a little bit later on. <clears throat> yeah, which has to do as, with the militarist tradition. Yeah, especially as a reaction to essentially English empiricism um, mm-hmm. of the Enlightenment. It's like there is always kind of a, well, we'll see here, opposing the identification of the morally good with the object of enlightened self-interest, however enlightened, the German philosophers insisted on the difference between the morally good and self-interest between the honestum and the utile. They insisted on self-sacrifice and self-denial. They insisted on it so much that they were apt to forget that the natural aim of man, which is happiness, happiness and utility, as well as common sense became almost bad names in German philosophy. Now the difference between the noble and the useful between duty and self-interest is most visible in the case of one virtue, courage, military virtue. The consummation of the actions of every other virtue is or may be rewarded. It actually pays to be just, temperate, urbane, munificent, etc. The consummation of the actions of courage, i.e. death on the field of honor, death for one's country, is never rewarded. It is the flower of self-sacrifice. Courage is the only unambiguously unutilitarian value. And he goes into how this was stressed in different ways by Fichte, Hegel, Nietzsche, 
who basically, and Strauss is going to say it's something of an overreaction in what is ultimately going to be a pro-England piece written during the middle of the World War II, which it's hard to fault him for that, even if it reads as weird to us today. But so there is a question of, are they reacting to the French Revolution? Is this like a Frankish thing here? These like utilitarian values, or is it an English thing? Which obviously matters if you're going to be defending England. And he turns to Nietzsche, who just has one of the, you know, it's a classic Nietzsche, that what one calls the modern ideas or the ideas of the 18th century, or even the French ideas, that ideal in a word against which the German spirit stood up with profound disgust. It is of English origin. There can be no doubt about that. The French have merely been the imitators, the actors of those ideas, besides their best soldiers, and also, unfortunately, their first and most complete victims. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> he always kills it. Yeah. Um, so this is kind of to say that in Germany, there is a tradition of really hating contemporary enlightenment, like global liberal society, not yet global, soon to be global. Yeah, um, international at least here. The thrust of that, which he'll say the Germans as always are throwing the baby out with the bath and they couldn't appreciate how good the English really were or whatever, which is neither here nor there. Um, I'll throw that baby out with the bath because I don't really want to talk about it. But what's more interesting to me, at least in terms of what we're going to talk about today, is I remember reading Yukio Mishima. We'll go like, so I was a teenager, late teens, early 20s, and he wrote a story called Patriotism. Oh, yeah, and dude. Story, <laughs> Hell yeah, bro. <laughs> so it's about this guy who's a Japanese, like an IJA officer, and his friends decide that they're going to stage a coup against the current like reigning people for the emperor to like become more militaristic essentially and they go and they fail and they flee and he's tasked with finding them and bringing them to justice um which is an impossible situation to be in because he can't betray the orders he's received but he also can't betray his friends and so calmly with resignation he realizes that he has to kill himself and this is like the first couple pages of the story the rest of the story is a long very delicately written description of his preparations for an eventual suicide which his wife assists him in before killing herself there's a long passage about having cut his stomach open part way how the sincerity and purpose he felt is the merest tiniest thread that he's struggling to hang on to as his guts like pour out of him and he's in the most complete agony. And like, you can tell Yukio Mishima had thought a lot about this. Like, what would it actually be like to kill yourself? Like not easy or fun. And you may even lose the reason you're doing it midway, but. But also a little bit like, I tell you what I do, man. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and he did. So I guess, <laughs> I guess he wasn't fair, kidding. <laughs> fair play to the lad. <laughs> so there's a line where he says he was a soldier on the front line of the spirit where there are no commendations or awards, you know, something like that. Like he was fighting a battle that no one was ever going to 
give him honor or glory for. No one was ever going to congratulate him for it. So like, what was the purpose of that? Like, what was he doing then? And I like, that's what that made me think of when he was saying, you know, what is courage? It's the one non-utilitarian value where if you are successfully courageous, then perhaps you die for your country and you get nothing, but you've died. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. and this is written because the German nihilists are atheists. It's written from an atheistic point of view. So death is the end. It's the complete, you know, from their point of view, like at that point, you're totally dispersed. Your individuality is gone. You've given everything and you no longer exist for them. That was at least aesthetically like the best thing I could possibly think of, you know, like, and you're like next to that, all of this other stuff around me is like feeble and sickly in comparison between that grandeur of spirit. Like, yeah, totally. It's, it's totally. so German. And yeah, like that's the stage. I don't think all that necessarily, because what we're going to say now is like, what's analogous to that in our situation? Um, we clearly have a lot of discontented young men, and at least some of them have a genuine moral protest against currently existing society. Um, That much I think is easily, we can agree is true. Whether or not they're all envisioning like glorious death on a battlefield or the like merits of closed society for the ability to truly be moral, it might be worth exploring in more detail whether or not that holds. But yeah, while I was reading it, I couldn't help but think, you know, like the capital insurrection stuff had just happened The thing that he points out that I found maybe particularly salient, which really uh, Michael Millerman said it best, so let me just quote him. He says, there's another component to what Strauss says in his nihilism essay that I think is so important, especially for the young academics or quasi-academics who may be watching this, who may be in university or grad school or somehow related to all of that. Because what Strauss says in that nihilism essay is that the young Germans who oppose Weimar liberalism, who oppose German post-war liberalism, and who oppose the communist vision of rejecting bourgeois consumerism and the rights of man for a classless and ultimately stateless society, Strauss says that they were young Germans who were disgusted by both of those prospects. They absolutely rejected liberalism outright because they felt that it emptied human life of all genuine depth, seriousness, and significance. And for similar reasons, they thought the communists or the left alternative was the worst nightmare. He asked, can we do a proper assessment of the underlying moral motivation of the young German nihilist who rejected liberalism and communism? Because what he ultimately says is that they didn't have a positive program to suggest, but there's a lot of significance in their rejection of the liberal and left alternatives. And the reason that the academic side of the question is so important here is because he says that they had progressive professors who completely failed to understand the positive significance of their moral revolt against liberalism and leftism, and who therefore pushed them further into what I will call right-wing anti-liberalism, radical right-wing anti-liberalism, without providing them any guidance, without throwing them any bones, so to speak, with no acknowledgement of the positive moral significance of their protest against the status quo, and against the communist dream or nightmare as you might see it. It was like they didn't even care to understand. They didn't even entertain the thought that there might be something worth criticizing. They didn't see any of that. What he says is that when these professors responded to the students with their platitudes about the liberal open society, it just confirmed the students and their beliefs that these professors were totally clueless as concerns the most important questions. 
So I mean, I definitely had that experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it made me think of the um, backlash to the documentary that feel when no GF. Oh yeah. Where the idea that the documentarian would just, I forget her name, but would just like let them speak for their behalf. And then it was up to the audience to decide how they felt and thought about what these, you know, nihilistic young men, you you know, uh, thought about their world. So that's the, that was the, horrific act of platforming and somehow endorsing these ideas by doing what is basically a certain school of documentary filmmaking. Yeah. And that that was sort of it, right? Is that that was somehow defeating their no by being like, you know, how dare, I mean, now you can't watch it. Like, I mean, I think it made things very hard for her, that documentary. And so she just sort of moved on and was like, whatever, like, I don't give a shit. You know, you can't find it anywhere. But that's immediately what I was thinking of when I was thinking of this type of thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely like, if you go out among such people, it would not be hard if you were, if you presented yourself in like a friendly way, it would really not be difficult to get them to basically tell you what their basic problems are with things. It's not hard to find out. I guess I can say it's not like you have to spend years deprogramming them to like get at what's really wrong with them. It's like really not difficult at all to see that. Like there's a few basic going concerns for a lot of people yeah, there are no jobs, there are no which, meaning, everything around them looks fucking hideous. You know? Yeah, like I got into Heidegger originally when I was like 20 because I was like, somebody told me like, oh, you know, I feel like your problem all along has been that you just have no idea what it means to be in the world where here's a guy who's thinking a lot about that. And I was like, okay, this seems like meaningful, you know, to my life. Like what indeed does it mean to be in the world? Like what am I supposed to do? What's the point of amassing pleasurable things and money? Like, cause I know that I would rather do that than like live a miserable life, but I also can't understand that that would be the apex of my ambitions mm-hmm. or would in be fact, merely to be comfortable. Right. Like you might do that and still be living a miserable life at some other level. Yeah. And when I would try and be like, so like talk to people about this, they would be like, Oh, you kids, you know, like, you just think everything's so bad, but eventually you'll realize that it's great to just have a little money and some nice things, which I will not dispute that I enjoy having a little money and some nice things and I wouldn't want to give it up. Like I have those tendencies for sure, but that was never felt satisfying to me as like, that's why you're here on earth and needing those questions to be answered and realizing that they were never going to be answered societally. Like, I would never give get anything from the social world that would give me any more than that drove me, I think, into a deeper and deeper interiority, like more and more reading, more and more thinking and everything, because that was the social situation. Like I couldn't go out and be like, Hey guys, like, let's talk about this because people would be like, what, like, why do you care? Are you a fascist or something? Like, you know, yeah. go away. So it has, it becomes extremely individualistic and like isolated until you learn that there are people like you online, which I think mm-hmm. maybe is kind of the genesis of a lot of this stuff is, you know, I eventually found 
like a handful of people who basically live something pretty close to my arc of why is there no meaning? What do I do? Oh, mm-hmm. here are these books. There are these religions. Like, let's look into these things. Like, oh, wow, this is how the world used to be. It sounds kind of based. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah. oh, wait, people used to, like, orient their lives around, like, I don't know, rituals and the sacred and, like, mm-hmm. things felt meaningful, even though they had fewer creature comforts. Like, that's pretty cool. Let's let's get more into that kind of thing, which that was about where I was at, at, like, 21, 22. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm grateful that I never fell into being a completely, like, resentful and miserable, like, person, which many people, I think, in this position end up exactly there where you've seen the memes like believes in like nobility self-sacrifice etc but like can't practice even an ounce of self-discipline just Mm -hmm. engages in constantly in dissipative activities like video games and like posting on forums and you know whatever hentai like just this kind of thing where you're like in your head there's like a noble person in a past you want to like resurrect and all this stuff but in reality you're like completely enslaved to just like seeking distraction pleasure and like slowly living your life doing absolutely nothing. I think that's where a lot of people find themselves. And I feel really extremely fortunate that I was able not to end up there in finality, you know, like able to do more with my life and be more than that. And this is all anecdotal. So who really knows, but I feel like this is a good description of a lot of people who end up on Mm -hmm. the online, right how they got there and like what they're living like once they're there, which I think kind of brings us maybe to the next part of yeah. what we want to talk about. Right. Exactly. So John and I are a big fan of the goat Bradley Trammell, the fully Joker Jokerified internet artist um, <laughs> who has been censored by Instagram for making memes that were too, too real, too trill. Um, let's yeah. say. And, you know, we've really admired that he's sort of gone his own way, that he seems to sort of have this, like, I've exited the cave experience of what it means to be an artist. And so he did a report on QAnon. Every once in a while, he'll do, like, you know, 20, 30-minute video where he does a report. Now, he wasn't really interested in the specifics of QAnon any more than he had to be to do the report. What he was interested in is as he says, how the fuck did this fringe conspiracy theory become like a major phenomenon? Because it is truly fucking wild. And so he walks through, let's say like the, the setup of, of Q, right? Where this person Q, whoever it is, makes these drops of information every once in a while on a few select forums where people try to interpret it and figure out the ways in which, at least while Trump was in office, uh, Trump was about to bust the evil, metaphysically satanic, pedophile ruling class that was harvesting the adrenochrome out of babies to stay forever young to the extent that they could and rule over all of us um, in this covert war of good versus evil. Which a fair amount of the, I think, predates Q. Like, that's sort of standard Alex Jones stuff. Right, exactly. I like, mean, I think that that's sort of the, the beauty of Q, is that it manages to 
It's form, not content. Right, right. Yeah, it aggregates. Uh, like he provides you with, somebody calls it guided apophenia. <laughs> you know, where yeah. the things are vague enough that you start to like put together what it should be by yourself, you mm, know? And mm-hmm. so then those people are called like the, the bakers. They bake the yeah, bread. Yeah, you get like cue drops, which are basically totally meaningless. And then mapping onto those, you have like a level of interpretation. That's the bakers, right? The bakers yeah, are yeah. like level one interpretation. It's like, okay, the string of like numbers and letters or whatever, like a meaningless sentence actually means like this, this, or this. And you have like a world of bakers who are kind of decentralized and they can kind of do whatever they want. But essentially they're all cohering around a few different basic big narratives. Yes. And then and from then- there, you're encouraged to do your own research, which means basically form your own sub interpretation. Mm-hmm. Like you're another level downstream from a baker. It's like weirdly apostolic. Right? Yeah. Like <laughs> in its setup was all I could think. Oh yeah. And what this does is, provides this self-pioneering narrative that can obviously be viralized very quickly because of the do your own research thing, because it's totally non-falsifiable that it spreads like wildfire and that people who are completely alienated, people who feel like they're being lied to all the time, which they are people who want explanations for why certain people never seem to leave office. And even when they do leave office, they wield an inordinate amount of power over their everyday life. This is a compelling thing. And not only that, as Shrema points out, it is basically watching a horror movie where you are completely safe, but you are experiencing the thrill of scaring the shit out of yourself with this narrative all the time. Because he says, most people probably don't actually believe this because if they did, like there would just be open warfare. It's about, if you really believe the Q narrative, it is about as morally ambiguous as would you kill Hitler? And most people would kill Hitler is what he argues, right? Like if we look at what happens in the Capitol, a lot of Q people were there. And like Kompot put it the best when he said, you know, they just milled around taking selfies. And like, why like, is it the level ending? <laughs> yeah, we're waiting for the level to end, you know? It was good when he was like, imagine having the government of the United States flee before you as you occupy the Capitol and not immediately issuing warrants for their arrest and forming an interim government. And I was like, yeah. Right. Or even reading a, pl- a proclamation. Yeah. Right. You know, like, like even even that would be like a, a close closer to like a propaganda of the deed type thing. You know, yeah. No, I think that's probably like it's the best illustration of, of that fact, this is not genuine in some real way. Right, right. And so you have, you know, Tremel also points out that like what these Q people believe is about as plausible as the Russiagate narrative. Mm-hmm. Right. Which if you're like, no, the Russiagate thing is way more grounded because it's closer to real life. You've been psyoped. Yeah, that's what I'll... If you think the P-tape is real, if you like had this moment where you were just (laughs) like, I'm just waiting for that P-tape, or like, oh, I could see that being real, you've been psyoped. Like, that's like waiting for the adrenochrome to show up. It feels like exactly the same thing on both sides, where one side is saying they're going to get him, they're going to get him, and they're talking about Donald Trump, and like the information is about to come out, and like... Mueller, yeah, don't don't fuck with the Mueller, yeah, woo, like you know what I mean, like yeah, it was kind of like a weird hype fest 
where you go watch Rachel Maddow and you get really hype and you're like, yeah, this stuff's about to happen. And but you like scare nothing... the shit out of yourself while living in your oh, absolutely, like living room. And nothing ever materializes. It just no, it's all completely ephemeral, which is almost the exact description of what's going on with the Q people. Like, oh, yeah. they're gonna get them. It's gonna happen, but like nothing ever really happens, which then occasions a further level of like you have to interpret it more like, oh, it didn't happen. So we need further interpretation as to why. Right. Because it's right. coming. Yeah. And the liberal response to doubts about Russiagate was just like, well, you're not keeping up with the news. In other words, you're not watching these several hour things that happen in the middle of your work day <laughs> that reveal <laughs> little to no information that you have to construct. You know, people have already memory hold people like Louise Mensch and Eric Garner who were absolute psychopaths that would just make shit up on Twitter that would basically work its way into the news and be true. Like I remember Louise Mesh being like, you know, there's like a, uh, you know, uh, Steve Bannon is going to be tried for execution. I'm pro-life and I experienced no joy in reporting this. (laughs) Like what, you know? (laughs) So, I mean, that's already been totally forgotten. People are acting like that wasn't this guiding narrative over the last four years as a way to distract from the fact that like nothing was what anybody said it was. Right. Yeah. So if we want to take what Strauss says about what's happening in the Academy in Germany at this time, which I think is a very canny explanation of how certain people were responding to the conditions around them, whether you agree with them or not, you know, like I, you know, I'm not going to get into that, but, um, and you want to look at it at society scale. Because I also want to avoid this this thing I can't stand where anytime something happens in the news, there's like eight Atlantic pieces that it's like, is this Weimar? Are we living <laughs> in Weimar? And it's like, shut up. This is way different than that yeah. in a lot of ways. Like the nihilism is there, but there was a protean element to politics that doesn't exist anymore that yeah. had to do with the shutdown <laughs> and almost complete collapse of the global economy in the thirties, you know, yeah. where people needed to generate new solutions to pull their societies back from the brink after that. And the aftermath of a world war that destroyed culturally, materially, psychologically, the entire European world order that seemed to exist before it. So what do we have now? Well, we have Tina. There is no alternative. And this mm-hmm. is what the nihilism of no alternative looks like. It looks like self-hypernormalization, where you are the artist who engages in the discipline of self-design of these narratives so that you can soothe and perform yourself for others as a way to legitimate yourself as a subject in society who's actually involved in any sort of narrative that's happening around you. In other words, it's a way to feel like your life matters or to simulate the experience of mattering at all and having any sort of impact on anything around you. If we're living in it, we live in a dang society. If we're living in a country where I'm having a conversation with somebody it is a three hour mystifying, like through the looking glass moment of realizing that we have no idea how to meaningfully participate in it. There are some real fucking problems. And I think it, it speaks to the fact that 
what did the German nihilists do? Well, I guess eventually form different parts of like the National Socialist Organization there, among other things. I mean, not all of them did. A lot of them were conservatives, which I think you could argue that the Nazis were not. But that yeah, they were the wrong thing. Yeah. They, 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 they fell on the different groups, but like, what are people today doing? If you would say like, what are the American nihilists doing? And, you know, they're just kind of reaching into the postmodern grab bag of like dead identities and mixing and matching, you know, imagery and signifiers to like do online identity formation and then meme at each other all day. It's right. kind of like this situation and it's not at all similar. Um, and if you, you doubt me go on Twitter and just like think to yourself like, Oh, like these, these avatars are all kind of the same. There's like 20 guys who have like a 16th century painting of a Cardinal. Mm-hmm. And then there's like, uh, you know, people with like some anime girl, they're like in this quarter of stuff. Like there's the same few basic things, like in a sort of repeating pattern of like, this is the kind of person I am in this subculture, et cetera. And like, us getting together and talking about near reaction is how I feel meaningful today. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's like, it's like when you look at stuff that treats this, that always comes to this basic point of like people would like to feel meaningful or at least able to address problems, but they can't. And so they settle for the feeling. Right. Exactly. Like, so I think that that's a, just a constitutive element of what we're dealing with now we can take this one step further because Bradley Trammell in his report quoted from a Boris Grois essay on what's it called? Let me just read it. It'll be in the show notes, but it's called self-design and aesthetic responsibility. And one of the things that, I mean, there's a lot he gets done in this very short piece, but one of the things that he talks about is, and I'll just quote from it here. He says, confronted with a world of total design, we can only accept a catastrophe, a state of emergency, a violent rupture in the designed surface as sufficient reason to believe that we are allowed a view of the reality that lies beneath. And of course, this reality too must show itself to be a catastrophic one because we suspect something terrible to be going on behind the design cynical manipulation, political propaganda, hidden intrigues, vested interests, crimes. Following the death of God, the conspiracy theory became the only surviving form of traditional metaphysics as a discourse about the hidden and the invisible. Where once we had nature and God, we now have design and conspiracy theory. It's really interesting that Strauss really emphasizes the fact that an atheistic right wing is a new phenomenon when he's talking about the German nihilists, like traditionally atheism was the purview of the left at that time. And that it's meaningful for a handful of reasons, which he doesn't really get into in the essay, but I think are going to be a big part of his overall project are like revelation, reason, secularism, philosophy, like how do these things relate to each other? Because later on in the Millerman essay, he talks about how for Strauss, revelation was ejected from the conversation, not by any form of like fundamental refutation, but merely by being laughed out of the conversation, by being ridiculed and mocked away from the table as his kind of conclusion about the removal of like revelation being a part, like 
interacting with the philosophical discourse or societal discourse and that in its absence that doesn't necessarily mean the absence of religion but it does mean that whatever is there is no longer it's no longer subject to like i don't want to say subject to rational inquiry but like let's just go back and say like we're in the middle ages like we're going to be talking about religion with a certain level of like there's a rational apparatus to that like there is yeah like, like the we're, ontological we're canny, proof yeah we're canny yeah. to the idea of interpretation so it's important to talk about how you interpret a text there's like a normativity to it that people can at least generally agree upon even if they're going to argue about these things you're trying to establish some form of like commonality to your interpretation and to your mode of thinking where you can then have a conversation and sort of be on the same page and you can establish mm-hmm. what is mm-hmm. like you could consider to be an error, to be beyond the pale, to be sort of crazy. Um, so like, that's how that sort of thing goes. But if you eject revelation from the table, it returns, but it doesn't return in that form. What you get, at least what Strauss sort of says you get is you get the gods of post-modernity, which it's no less religious than religion ever was, I guess you could say. But fundamentally, we're not talking about like Moses Maimonides or, you know, like. Um, yeah, Avicenna or Aquinas. Abbas, like we're not, we're not doing that kind of thing yeah. anymore. Or, this is or like. St. Teresa of Avila or, you yeah. know, whoever. Yeah. This is the return of the idols, but they're holding pitchforks, you know, yeah. and they're like, it's a completely different thing. And in a way it's like sub, it's definitely sub rational. Um, I've even heard it called sub pagan once like yeah. <laughs> it's beneath pagan, yeah. but it's, it's some new kind of, you know, form of, but I think that that's like an important part of what we're talking about here because Groys identifies it with the conspiracy theory, which now, you know, Trammell, interestingly, he differentiates, you have like JFK and stuff, which is like, you have one event, and a lot of theories around it and an exhaustible amount of information. Like you can mm-hmm. eventually exhaust the information to an, like to a degree where you can be satisfied. You're like, I know everything that I want to know about this. Mm-hmm. I, I feel this way or that about it. And it's over. Like yeah, Q is like this open world. Q is like, you could call it constantly iterative or something. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, yeah, it's like a procedurally generated, like massively multiplayer experience. <laughs> <laughs> and there is an aspect to it where like it fundamentally relies upon a speculative reasoning about the unseen, but yeah, as does Russia gate. Right. Yeah. Like that's the, you know, cause like none of these people could speak Russian. One of my favorite things that time magazine did was that they had that image of like the white house fading into what I think that they thought was supposed to be the Kremlin, but was really just St. Petersburg (laughs) or whatever, which is like a totally baffling, like we never would have made that mistake in the fifties. It's disgusting. Honestly, we had real Kremlinologists. then. (laughs) We did. One of them was Condoleezza Rice, you know, like she had that shit down pat, you know, she had every Soviet official's name, position, spouse, and children's name memorized. She was a very serious Kremlinologist. Uh, she'd probably be tried at The Hague, but, you know, I can at <laughs> least respect, you know, that, that level of seriousness. 
one of the things that Trammell touches on that I think is related to Strauss and was related to the Groys is that there seems to be this disconnect between these people and the reality of the society that they live in. Mm. There seems to be this unbridgeable gap. So there's this rejection of the modern world and the liberal and left iterations happening in Germany that Strauss details. Now there seems to be rejection of the world as such in both of these camps so that it can be constituted and and aestheticized in part self-designed regime of narrative as a self-soothing technique for living in a deeply alienated society that provides no avenues for people to realize themselves, take responsibility for the world around them, or to even basically understand how things work. A great example of that would be how we've talked about this many, many times, and we'll talk about it still. We all had a big empirical learning process about supply chains because of COVID, but that economy took decades to put in place. So we were acting like that wasn't the world while that world was being installed and perfected over like half a century. Mm. So what we're dealing with now is not this new moment of disconnect, but it is the first wave that has crested over the ocean barrier wall for what has been a rising tide. This stuff has been happening for a long, long time and is just now finding itself expressible in broad ways that can be assimilated by media organs and social media, basically because of new social technology in the media. Like I really want to disabuse people of the idea that what we're dealing with now is like something that started in 2016. That makes me think of three fairly disparate people. Um, The first one would be John Michael Greer, who ran for like 15 years, the blog Archdruid Report. And one of the recurring themes there was mm, that we in America live, we who live in an urban setting or in a very... um, like we'll call it like artificial setting of some kind have existed in a pretty insulated way. And I think he would say first and foremost, there is a kind of like, like a level of being that you no longer have access to if you don't experience like organic growth cycles, growth decay and these kinds of things. But then a further level of that would be like, we don't even really like Emmett saying experience industrial growth cycles that are still happening. Um, Like we live even insulated from the functioning of our own artifice. Like that's the level of artifice to which we're living at right now. The level of remove from basic like physical realities for those of us who are able to live in that way. And that it creates kind of like a psychology where 
if you don't know there's problems, then you're not anticipating problems. You're not working on how to solve those problems and you won't solve those problems. And then one day it'll just happen to you. The image of the, like the wall being overwhelmed by the wave, I think is probably something that Greer even used a few times in terms of how eventually the mounting issues facing society would become such that they were no longer something even we could ignore but at that time we would be caught so off guard that we would have very few means of dealing with them personally and psychologically or addressing them societally because we were essentially living in what amounted to a dream um which I read that for a long time and it always had like a profound effect on me. And this was like back, we'll say like, this is like back in the Obama years, like, or even before that, like, yeah, I was like, yeah, people really don't seem that concerned about things like, you know, they've been revised over time, but like back then the drought predictions for like 2040 to 2050 were apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. in terms of the current weather models at that time they're a little bit better now but they're still not great and i was thinking like yeah that's that would be like a huge issue like how do we reorient globally food production if this comes true like what do we do in that scenario mm-hmm. and then you look and you're like oh like no one is thinking about that like no one even gives a shit at all like that's too far in the future for it to matter to a single person here the second person I thought of was alone of the last psychiatrist who I was just rereading one of his posts uh, was the dove ad one. And he's talking about, um, I know, sorry, it was hipsters living on food stamps. Yeah. That's a really great essay. And he's talking about the, you know, so this article comes out that's talking about hipsters with like bachelors in English, you know, degrees or PhDs who are living on food stamps. And the article wants me to hate them. And it's like, okay, yeah, I'm ready to hate them, but wait, why? <laughs> like, why do you want me to hate them? And at a certain point, it quotes a woman who's an assistant professor of French at like Princeton or something. I don't really remember. Um, and she's she's like responding to hipsterism. And she's trying to offer the theory like, oh, hipsterism is all about a pure irony that allows you to really treat everything as if it doesn't matter and not attach to anything it's just so ironic. And she was like, you know, I came up in the nineties, the time between the two great collapses, one of the Berlin wall and the second of the twin towers. And she said that she would like to think that those were very sincere times. And that grunge was very sincere in its ethos, which it got from punk. Similarly, feminism was making new strides never before seen. And you know, like that all ended with the Twin Towers and now we're living in a world of irony. But then she also realizes that she's super ironic. And when you read that, you're like, are you serious? <laughs> like you looked at Nirvana and you were like, yeah, those were like, like super nothing- sincere guys. Like, you know, I mean, for okay. I mean, Kurt Cobain was a drug addict. So he was like a consummate liar who probably didn't even know when he was like being emotionally honest with himself or anyone around him. That doesn't mean he didn't create great art. He did. Oh yeah. But uh, you know, I I would not describe that as like a sincere engagement with the world. And uh, there are all sorts of aesthetic issues that come up with that, that we're not going to get into, but I would suggest that listeners go watch footage from the decline of Western civilization documentary where you watch Darby crash of the germs play lexicon devil. 
and he's so fucking drunk that he can't even like scream the words he's supposed to scream. He can't stand up straight or whatever. Now you watch it now and there's something kind of like cringe and embarrassing about it. And you know, whatever, that doesn't matter. I remember bringing that up. That was my reaction to somebody in college. And the guy looked at me like I was the dumbest kid in the history of America. And he was just like, you're missing the context. When you put that next to something like, yes, with 50 different keyboards on stage and these guys dressed like they walked out of a Tolkien painting, you realize what a funny, ironic joke about being a rock star or whatever Darby's playing right there. That that is self-ironizing to a very self-destructive and maybe nihilistic degree. I mean, that stuff is happening at the end of the Fordist economy, right? And now, and that's when Christopher Lash is writing. And the guys at Alpha Bunga Bunga brought this up, you know, like now we're ostensibly perhaps living at least in a crisis, a legitimation crisis of the neoliberal globalized, like super horizontalized economy. And so some of what we're experiencing is downstream from what Lash describes during this other crisis, right? And because we live in the same country, it's not surprising that some of those things feel prescient now. And I love that woman's self-deceit about like what the 90s were. I remember talking to a guy about that who hated Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Oh man, I can't believe I'm going to say this. This is one of the funniest <laughs> things anybody said to me. He hated Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Hold on. <laughs> <I> need- <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> He hated jo- uh <laughs> <laughs> he hated Joseph Gordon-Levitt. This dude was screaming in the car <laughs> while we were driving together. It was a few years ago. He hated Joseph Gordon-Levitt for his like hit record, whatever project. I don't give a shit about it. I don't know what it is. Because to him, it seemed like this betrayal of what Alt Nation should have been. <laughs> which he really believed in in the 90s. And I was just like, fucking excuse me? Uh, like there's a reason why Adam Curtis puts out the hypernormalization documentary and points out that we're just like living in this permanently in this increasingly liminal space where the reality of our situation feels totally ungraspable, but that only happens if there's an accumulation of it. There's no radical break that makes that happen. It sets in slowly over time. When we talk about Lindy effects, right? Stupidest way to put this, things that have been around for a long time are going to continue to be around for a really long time, right? Just a, just a power law. So I want everybody to think about everything we've just said. And if you think that we're right, you know, that this isn't just this thing that started in 2016, that you can actually identify some patterns and trends that take place, some of them material, some of them cultural, some of them political, all these things sort of overlapping in this Venn diagram, right? then you have to accept at some core level that there is no upcoming in any brief moment off-ramp to anything that's happening right now. You cannot live your life in a way where playing pretend becomes the same thing as optimism because that, that is the discipline of self-design. It's so instructive that for as much as there are memes, like we have to go back to like 
Admiral Horatio Nelson. There are also memes that are like, we have to go back and it's like a kid's room full of like 80s and 90s posters mm-hmm. and like a Nintendo 64. And it's like, I mean, when I look at that, I'm like, yeah, like that sounds good to me. That was also my childhood. Mm-hmm. But if you then reflect on why it feels that way, it's like, well, I just want to go back to adolescence because mm-hmm. I had fewer responsibilities and I had way less of an awareness of the world and I could just exist kind of pleasurably in a bubble to some extent. And that was nice. And like everything that's happened since then has been way harder and weirder. And I can never seem to recapture the many moments where I was just kind of like happy and at peace at times, Mm -hmm. or it's like harder and harder. And it's like, okay, like that makes sense. But then you pull out from that again and you're like, that's like a crazy thing for like a grown person to be feeling on a fairly consistent basis. Then you pull out from that again and you're like, Oh, it's because this person basically feels like they're totally ineffectual within the world in which they live. And like, they can't really do anything that's to any purpose other than hopefully like weathering whatever future economic storms come their way. And so like, that's kind of what they're able to contribute to is like, well, I'll at least try to gain some form of material safety as best as I can but otherwise like I'm in a world world that I can't really like you said I can't grasp much of what's going on so I get to pick like do I am I agnostic about it do I Mm -hmm. just stop paying attention do I get really into sports or like video games again and just spend most of my time that way or do I decide to engage in like Q you know and then I develop kind of like well, on one hand, I have a way of like stimulating myself whenever I need to. Cause like mm-hmm. you often find yourself bored. Well then just go look up like the adrenochrome stuff. And that's very stimulating. And you spend a lot of time that way you make friends mm-hmm. and you form a shared sense of a world in which there's a great power struggle going on, which at least permits of some resolution sometime in the future, maybe when things will be good again. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you look askance at things like that and you're like, oh, those guys are really ridiculous and you practice your own much more individual version of the very same thing that they're doing in a different manner where you still, basically what I'm saying is like nobody really is going to be able to do more than that. And like, unless on some level, a historical account is like necessary. And I don't think it fully solves the problem. Like if we laid out to you the entirety of like the last 300 years on this podcast and you knew it all. I still don't think that you would solve the basic problem. (laughs) Nor would we. (laughs) Yeah. But I do think it's helpful to have context. Yeah. What seems to be missing. Yeah. That you can look at something like Q or whatever and understand like the basic impulses, which lead people to participate in it. But at the same time, feel like, you know, like I don't want to waste my time that way. <laughs> and I would also like for you to look at Rachel Maddow and Russiagate and those people and feel the same way about that mm-hmm. and kind of be able to see how it's in practice. Similar mechanisms, except one currently enjoys more official support than the other, but mm-hmm. that could change at any time and it doesn't really matter. But, you know, like we're, like the idea that we're somewhat living in a dream has always felt sort of compelling to me because of the fact that 
the greatest desire that is manifesting in those memes about returning to adolescence is like the dream was more complete back then. Whereas nowadays it's much harder. Yeah. It reminds me of this Borges story called the lottery of Babylon. Mm. Like all the men of Babylon, I have been pro counsel like all I have been a slave. I have known on omnipotence, ignominy, imprisonment. Look here. My right hand has no index finger. Look here. Through this gash in my cape, you can see my stomach, a crimson tattoo. It is the second letter, Beth. On nights when the moon is full, the symbol gives me power over men with the mark of Gimel. But it subjects me to those with the Aleph, who on nights when there is no moon owe obedience to those marked with the Gimel. In the half-light of dawn, in a cellar, standing before a black altar, I have slit the throats of sacred bulls. Once, for an entire lunar year, I was declared invisible. I would cry out and no one would heed my call. I would steal bread and not be beheaded. I have known that thing the Greeks knew not, uncertainty. In a chamber of brass, as I faced the strangler's silent scarf, Hope did not abandon me. In the river of delights, panic has not failed me. Heraclides Ponticus reports admiringly that Pythagoras recalled having been Pyrrhus, and before that, Euphorbus, and before that, some other mortal. In order to recall similar vicissitudes, I have no need of death, nor even of imposture. And you realize that this man is telling you this story while you're waiting at a harbor outside of Babylon. And it becomes unclear whether the world he's describing to you is true because the lottery decides everything and how it has taken over life in Babylon. The social roles seem confused. Everything is both static because of the guidance of the lottery and all the time shifting. No one is even certain if the lottery even exists anymore at a certain point. It has become so unmoored yet self-sustaining. I think that captures some of what we're talking about here. How would you serve Babylon with the lottery in place? Does Babylon even want servants? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what do does you, it need? Yeah. That um, <clears throat> the third person I was thinking of, which I feel like kind of that kind of brings me to, was um, there was like a while back, Kantbot wrote a thing about a cosmism, like not believing in the world, like not mm -hmm. holding that a world exists. Um, what he really wanted to get at was that the vast majority of us are constructing our idea of the world from a handful of experiences that we've had in our own personal lives, the anecdotes we get from friends, and then what was it the highly compressed bonus experiences called TV and the internet? <laughs> um, that get mixed into an idea of like, oh, this is the world. So we build the world on our own head from these things. And then we pass an aesthetic judgment on it. And then we stand in relation to that creation without any sense that quite possibly we're a hundred percent wrong about everything we just said. You know what I like mm -hmm. that there's a fund. And I think this is probably at root. We, there's a very fundamental like epistemological problem that undergirds all of this. 
And I, it's something that like Jean Baudrillard talks about a bit in some of his work where he talks about how, you know, constituting the Pharaoh as like the supreme idol or whatever of that society might seem strange or untrue to us, but how much more true was it in a world where he did indeed decide most things than anything <laughs> that we currently know or believe about anything? Like if you took any standard idea of what the U.S. government is and how it works, you know, like we live in a republic where people are elected and represent the will of the people who elected them. And that's so everyone's wishes are kind of taken together and then put into this governing process through the like trusted representatives who represent all of our concerns. And then through, you know, like consensus is built and then now we have laws and then those laws, like that's an account that exists and some people I'm sure take it very seriously, maybe even a lot of people, but like, is that more true than Pharaoh in a certain basic sense? Mm-hmm. Like probably not even close. Um, the rapid multiplication of like signs and symbols between me and anything feels like at times impenetrable. It's something that Rick Roderick talks about a lot. He mentions yeah. like Washington DC produces more paper and writing in like a day than was produced in the world, you know, for like 5,000 years or something <laughs> yeah, like yeah. it just, you, how can you figure out what matters and what doesn't matter? Is that even possible anymore? Like, mm-hmm that kind of leaves you with these questions that are not really answerable. Yep. Yeah. Especially when it comes to like how you're supposed to live your life. So I think we'll close out there. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Woof. That's okay. I'll think about the Joseph Gordon Levitt rant later and like (laughs) chuckle to myself. Thank you guys for listening. It's been a joy as always. If you can, please rate and review. We'd very much appreciate it. And stay safe out there. We will see you next week. Bye.